Hello, and welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated, and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can also subscribe on Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email him at eric.anderson, that's E-R-I-K dot A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N at nllutheran.com. Let's get growing. scripture this morning comes from the 12th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look at your disciples, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Suppose one of you has only one sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored, as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The Gospel of the Lord. I was born in Kansas City, grew up just outside of it. Go Chiefs, if you thought you were going to get away without hearing me say that. Uh, you were wrong. Um, it's been a good week. I've annoyed uh, not only uh, my, the journey classes that I've been teaching, uh, but also my coworkers and my wife probably talking about uh, the Chiefs win, and especially those last seven glorious minutes of the fourth quarter um, where Patrick Mahomes did his thing. Truly, truly the savior of Kansas City um, in, in this week. So, uh, uh Anyway, I grew up outside of Kansas City in a town called Lawrence, and in Lawrence was this federal college. It was called Haskell Indian Nations University. It's a Native American college, and so people, um, Native American families from all over the country would go to Haskell in Lawrence, Kansas, and many of them stayed in Lawrence. They would uh, open up businesses, they would go to work in Lawrence, and I grew up in a neighborhood 
that had a lot of Native Americans in it. It was kind of, uh, it was a lower middle class part of town. And I had a lot of Native Americans in my neighborhood. In fact, the high school that I went to was a majority minority school. And much of the minority that was there was Native Americans. So all throughout my, uh, my childhood, we would have these school rallies. In fact, my middle school is named after the first Native American to run in the Olympics, Billy Mills. Um, and so all throughout my education, we would have these rallies where they would bring in Native American leaders. And they would tell us these stories. Uh, They would tell us some of the Native American mythologies, especially uh, there was a large Lakota and Choctaw uh, um, group in our town. So we had um, tribal leaders, we had elders come to our schools, and they would tell us these amazing stories. And so from a very young age, I loved listening to these stories, the rhythms and the cadences of them. And that actually blossomed in me a love for stories of all kinds. So throughout high school then, um, I was very into English. I loved my English classes, um, and I enjoyed Greek mythology classes. And it kind of birthed this love for story and storytelling. And when I uh, first kind of, when Jesus got a hold of me, um, and, I, and I started to take my faith seriously um, at the end of high school, what, what caught my interest the most at first um, were the stories in Scripture. Um, the scriptures are amazing, packed full of these great stories that were primarily um, oral traditions. So they were passed down from generation to generation and memorized by uh, families. The elders would give it to the next generation and they would memorize these stories exactly how they were told. And it's this amazing um, there's an amazing history of the oral tradition of the scriptures that they started out being told, passed down um, verbatim uh, to generation to generation, eventually came down to writing. And in our gospels, many of our gospels are the same kind of thing. And especially this uh, gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was an apostle. Um, So after Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven and the apostles were given the Holy Spirit and sent out into the world, more than likely, Matthew was a pastor. And so as he's pastoring a church, chances are he began to uh, develop these stories that he witnessed Jesus doing. And he would make sure that the right details about the stories were in there so that he could teach exactly what he wanted to teach to his congregation. So the the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, uh, those two primarily, are meant and designed to be these kind of shorter stories that are meant to be read just like I read them earlier. They're meant to be said out loud as a unit, um, and they're told in these wonderful little tight, compact teachings. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're looking at one of these great stories uh, that Matthew witnessed and that he began to tell to his, um, his congregation and eventually wrote down for his gospel. And this is how the story begins. It's right in the, in the middle of Matthew, and actually this is a, a turning point story, but we can't get into that. Um, at that time, so he just sets up, right, Uh, you know, you can almost fill in like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? At that time, just the way to introduce a story. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So as a good storyteller or a good story would have it, what do you do at the beginning? You give us the setting and you give us the plot conflict, right? The setting is outside town in, in a grain field on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath for the Jewish community was Saturday. Uh, God created the world in six days. And then the seventh day, Saturday, was the day of rest 
the early uh, Christians, uh, they began to practice the Sabbath on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, which is why we uh, kind of typically understand Sabbath to be on Sunday and why we worship on Sunday, because it's the day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was resurrected. Um, but they were there on, this, on a Saturday, and more, more likely, more than likely, they were walking to synagogue. They were heading to worship, uh, because later in the story, they actually go to a synagogue. Um, and in, in the Jewish culture and in the, the law, the Old Testament, you were not allowed to walk very far on the Sabbath, because the law, according to God, was that you could not work on the Sabbath. You could do nothing. Uh, and actually, in the Old Testament, God gives the command that if people work on the Sabbath, they should be stoned to death. It's this very strict kind of environment where you're not allowed to work, your spouse isn't allowed to work, your kids aren't allowed to work, your slaves aren't allowed to work, your animals aren't allowed to work. On the seventh day, everybody stops. And so then on Friday, the day before the seventh day, everybody would make these great meals, they would get prepared, so that on Saturday, the only thing they did, the only work they did, was walk to synagogue to hear the scriptures being read out loud, and to hear teaching from a rabbi. That was the only thing they were allowed to do. And so we have this story where Jesus and his disciples, and apparently these Pharisees, are walking to synagogue, more than likely. And as they're walking past the grain field, the disciples are hungry. And so they begin to pick the heads of grain and to eat them. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they see uh, Jesus' disciples doing this, and they say, hey, Jesus, because Jesus being the master was responsible for his disciples. They said, look, your disciples are breaking God's holy law. According to God's law, they are not allowed to harvest. They can't pick grain. And yet here they are harvesting grain for themselves. So we have the story set up. We have the protagonist, Jesus. We have the antagonist, the Pharisees. And then we see the rest of the story unfold. And this is how Jesus responds to this accusation that they're breaking the law. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which, in which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath, um, yet are guiltless? So Jesus introduces these two issues. He points out two um, examples in the Old Testament where there seems to be a contradiction in God's law. God has given the holy law in the Old Testament, uh, primarily in the first five books of the Bible. He gives the holy law, and according to that law, you are not allowed to cook, to eat, to do anything. Uh, He gave a law about the bread of the presence, which was uh, the bread that sat in the holy place that only the priests were allowed to eat from. And yet here are these two contradictions. The first one is from 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's the story of King David. At this point, he's anointed the rightful king of Israel, and he's running from the current king of Israel, Saul, who has not honored God and who has been left to his own devices, and Saul is going into this uh, pretty intense uh, mental health spiral at this point. And he begins to lash out, he becomes very violent, and, um, and he's chasing David around. And he's trying to kill David. And David and his companions, they run to the tabernacle, to the house of God. And they come to the temple. It's not a temple, it's a tabernacle. They come to the holy place and the priests give them this bread. That only the priests, according to God's holy law, only the priests are allowed to eat. And they eat it. You see the problem? 
How can the king of Israel, King David, how is it that he can break the law? And then Jesus points out uh, the priests. On, on the Sabbath, uh, you were uh, asked to give some sacrifices, and so the priests had to work on the Sabbath. They had to slaughter, they had to clean, and they had to butcher, and they had to sacrifice animals. And you were not allowed to slaughter animals on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to clean animals on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to butcher animals on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to cook animals on the Sabbath. So why is it that these priests, week in and week out, break God's holy law and work on the Sabbath? What we don't know in this context at this point is that during this time, uh, there was actually this big conversation amongst many scholars, Jewish scholars, and many rabbis, they would have this conversation about why there are these seeming contradictions in the Old Testament. Why in their scriptures, as they read God's holy law, there are these places that the laws seem to not line up quite right. And why David could, in fact, break the law. And why the priests can, in fact, break the, wall, the law. And they began to um, create these categories. And they began to, uh, as theologians and scholars, are, they, they do this. They make it really, really complicated. And so they'll say things like, well, because David was anointed the king of Israel, uh, because he, he's technically all of Israel in one person, he doesn't really have to break the law. So he's technically kind of a priest, so he can go in and he can eat the bread of the presence. And, and you can see how that can get a little complicated. And then they would say things like, well, uh, the, the sacrificial laws, the sacrifices that we give to God, are actually more important than the Sabbath laws. They supersede the Sabbath laws. So the priests on the Sabbath can break the Sabbath. Sabbath law, if they're doing a sacrifice, do you see how complicated and how convoluted this can get? And so religious scholars would weave these tight webs of logic and say, well, certain people at certain times can break God's holy law in certain ways because some laws are more important than other laws. And right, you see how that can, I'm sorry that theologians and scholars do this. It's unfair and it's not right. But this is what they would do. They would create all these categories and they would try to set everything up logically. And then Jesus says uh, this to them. Or Jesus continues. um, And he says this. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus introduces this argument, this broader conversation that, that the Pharisees and other scholars are having about some laws being more important and being greater and superseding other laws. And then he says, I tell you right now, something greater than the temple. The temple is where the law of God was kept, where the scrolls were kept, and the temple is where the sacrifices were made. I tell you right now, something greater than the temple Something greater than where the law is kept and where the sacrifices are done is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And what is that thing? It's Jesus, right? It's him. He's saying, I'm more important. I supersede all these laws that you're trying to fit into these tight categories. You think that the sacrificial laws supersede the Sabbath laws. Well, I supersede the sacrificial laws because something greater than the temple is here. We're told in the, in the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus is the final and full sacrifice for our sins. And now he is the only mediator between God and us. We're told in Galatians and Romans that Jesus fulfills the law. So we are no longer under the law. In fact, Jesus himself said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
Something greater is here. And that something greater is Jesus. But then he continues. He keeps, he keeps his foot on the gas. And he's kind of like scolding these Pharisees. He says this, but if you had known what this means, and then he quotes an Old Testament prophet, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Putting the foot on the gas, he makes these Pharisees feel even more silly and even worse because he's pointing to this prophetic tradition. This, uh, this quote is from Hosea, um, which is uh, from the northern, he's from the northern kingdom. If you can check out if you don't care about history a whole lot. Uh, but when it comes to all the prophets that we have, he's kind of in the middle. He's not, it's not quite the exile, so we're not talking um, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, um, but he's probably around the time of Isaiah, right? Um, and he's in the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was participating in the worship of God, but they weren't taking care of poor people, and they weren't taking care of widows and orphans. And so God gives them this, this saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Hosea is actually tapping in to an important uh, tradition in the prophets. And all throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they are all pointing toward something that's beyond the law. They kept talking about something better that's coming. Jeremiah talks about a new covenant. There's going to be a new code, a new law. There's going to be a new thing that God does, a new agreement with God's people. Ezekiel, uh, God says through Ezekiel that um, he's going to take the heart of stone from his people and he's going to put in a heart of flesh and on their hearts he's going to write the law so that no one has to teach them or threaten them anymore. They're always pointing to something past and beyond. And then we'll get statements like this from Hosea, where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is scolding these scholars because although they may know the scriptures really, really well, they miss the point. And this is the point, that the laws of God, the commands of God, in the Old Testament specifically, were never designed to make people righteous. They weren't actually supposed to make the Israelites completely righteous. The prophets always said, there's something coming next. There's something better coming. When God gave the commands, he never intended them to make people perfect. Only Jesus does that. The laws do a couple things to the Israelites and to us now. The laws show us God's expectations. And they also show us that we never meet those expectations. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. This constant failure of the people of God to meet God's expectations. And the whole thing is set up for Jesus. For Jesus to come and to make everything right again. The law was never intended to make people perfectly righteous. And Paul talks about this in, the, in his letter to the Galatians and to the Romans. He says the law is almost like a school marm. It was there to give us discipline and it was there uh, to show us the right way, but it was not meant to make, us, to make people fully mature and fully holy. That's what Jesus does. And Jesus makes the point here in saying that the whole point of the law is to make us more merciful, more loving. And he actually says this in another place. Uh, Somebody comes up to them and they say, Teacher, um, what is the greatest commandment? You guys know what he says? He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, 
in these two commandments, the whole law of God is fulfilled. Love, outward love and mercy, was, is the proper end of the law. It was never meant to make us righteous. It was, meant, um, it was meant to help us love and have mercy on people. And so Jesus says here, if you would have known that mercy and love is what the end of the law is supposed to be, then you would not have accused those who are guiltless. The disciples were hungry. They needed food. Later on in this story, we won't get, we won't get into it, um, they make their way the rest of the way to the synagogue, and, um, and there's a man there who's hurt. He has a withered hand. And the, the Pharisees are trying to trap him, and they're saying, hey, are you, is it okay to work to heal this man on the Sabbath? And he says, if you have a sheep and it falls into a pit, are you not going to work on the Sabbath to save your sheep? And humans are so much more important than sheep are. And then Jesus says, yes, it is right to do good. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because that's the point. That's the point. This is what we see um, this week. As Jesus gives this pretty challenging response to the Pharisees, he points the Pharisees that he's the fulfillment of the law, something greater than the temple is here, and then he points them to the, the proper end of the law is actually mercy. It's love. And I want to give you a couple examples. Let's, let's talk about the Sabbath, right? And Pastor Ben referenced this a few weeks ago, and he did a, he did a very nice job um, explaining this. Um, God has given us a command. Rest every seven days. Now, as a Christian, we no longer have that command as a threat. That command is no longer given to us. If you don't rest on the seventh day, you're going to die and go to hell. Like, God doesn't give us that command again in that way. But here's the deal. If you don't stop working and rest every seven days, what's going to happen? You might be fine after nine days. You might be fine after 14 days. You might even be fine after 17 days. But once you get into 21, 22, 25 days of not taking a break, you're going to get burnt out, aren't you? You're actually going to not be able to work as well. You're not going to be as good of a coworker if you don't take a break. You're not going to be as good of a spouse or a parent. You're going to be less patient and less kind and less loving to the people around you because you haven't taken a break, right? Because you're going to get burnt out. So the Sabbath, as Jesus gives it back to us, after we're spirit-filled Christians, the Sabbath is no longer take a break or you're going to go or you're going to die and go to hell. But it's given to us saying, take a break because it's good for you going to make you more fruitful. It's going to make you better. And in fact, you're going to be able to be more loving and merciful to those around you because you take a break. Our relationship with God is taken care of. Jesus Christ, he, his death was good enough to cover all of our sins. That's done. God no longer gives us laws because we need to obey them or we're out of his grace. He's already given us his grace. That's already finished. The work is done. But he gives us his laws again to have mercy on those around us, to do good for those around us. Here's another example. Um, in Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5 uh, through chapter 7, Jesus gives this teaching on a mountain. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he'll introduce an Old Testament law, and then he'll en- enhance it and make it harder um, to follow. And so he'll say something like this. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. 
Well, that's easy. I've never committed adultery. Check that one off. But he says, uh, but I say to you, even when you've looked at someone with lustful thoughts, with lustful intention, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He enhances the law. And that law, when given back to us, um, is given to us for this reason. Lust turns into objectification. Because it's intimacy without relationship, right? It's just you're playing a video in your head. And objectification leads to abuse. And guess what? Our world could use a lot less abuse right now, right? And so this law is given back to us not as a threat, not with a gun to our head. The law is given back to us because Jesus is saying, hey, stop at lust. Don't even, don't even go there because it's going to make you better. It's going to make your mental health better. And it's going to make the people around you better when you don't objectify them and when you don't abuse them. Here's another example. Um, Jesus said, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. Well, that's easy. I've never committed murder. Check that one off. Jesus says, but I say to you, even if you are angry with somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. Here's the deal. My coworkers, my spouse, my kids could use me being a little bit less angry all the time, right? They could use me being more patient and generous and kind and loving, right? Because anger breeds contempt, which breeds hate, which breeds um, this overflow of bad behaviors, right? And so Jesus gives us a command. Don't even get angry. Don't even go there. Not because he's holding a gun to our head, but because it's going to make you, your life, and the people around you better if you're not angry. You see how that works? The law is given back to us, not as a threat, but as a gift. Because it's going to make you better, and if you are more fruitful, if you are kinder, if you are more generous, guess what's going to happen? Your coworkers, your spouse, your kids, the people who live next to you on the street, your actual physical neighbors, they're going to live better lives too. Because you're going to be more generous and kind and supporting and encouraging to them. So the law is given back to us not to twist our arms, not because God threatens us, but because God wants us to have mercy and love for those around us. The proper end of the law is love. As a spirit-filled, baptized Christian, we are no longer under the threat of hell. God has made us right with him. That's a done deal. But now he gives us the law and says, go love your neighbor well. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We're not doing God a favor when we obey him. God's honor is God's honor. He's going he's gonna to be God whether or not we obey him or not. But he wants us to love and serve our neighbors for their good. He wants us to create healthy neighborhoods and communities. And so he gives us the law. He has this scripture packed with eternal truth. He says a lot about wealth, about relationships, about sexual relationships and family relationships, about business relationships and business practices. He says a lot of things in the scripture. And he gives them to us not to threaten us, but to make us better and to make those around us better. Because when we are more generous and thoughtful and loving in our business... It makes our employees better, it makes our customers better, and it makes our community better. 
When we're more loving and thoughtful and patient in our family relationships, it makes our kids better. And then our kids make their friends better. And it makes our whole community better. God gives us the law to show us how we can love and have mercy on those around us. Uh, Pastor Ben, he has a great analogy. Uh, When I first got here and we started having these conversations, um, and I don't know if he even remembers, I don't even know if he uses this analogy often or not, but he used it once and it stuck with me, so I like it. And he says, it's like you're running a race. And the finish line of the race is eternal life. And you start the race, but you can't run worth anything. And so Jesus runs the race for you. He runs and he beats everybody by a mile. Boom. It's no question. He is, he is first place. He passes the finish line and someone comes over with a victory wreath and hangs it around your neck. And then you begin to run the victory lap. And everyone's cheering for you because you've run the, won the race. Jesus has won the race for you. You're the one taking the victory lap. And as you're running the victory lap, there's little morsels of food, little cookies and granola bars and good things for you to eat. And that's like the law. We're on the victory lap. Jesus has won the race. But now we get to stop and say, oh, here's this teaching about my family relationships. That's good for me. It's sweet. It tastes good. The victory's won, and now we just get these treats. We just get the law given back to us in this healthy way that makes us better, that makes our lives better, that makes our lives more sweet. And the purpose of it all is to have mercy and to love our neighbors better. You see, we put a filter on Jesus when we talk about the law. And our filter is one of self-righteousness. Where we think rules are there to show who's right and who's wrong. We think rules are there for us to gauge and to judge how the other people who may be sitting in our row right now or in our church or in our community are doing versus us. We kind of think that's how rules operate. They're there to show who's morally right, who's morally wrong, who's in, who's out, who should I dislike, who should I look down on, because I'm following the rules and they're not. That's the filter that we put on. But the unfiltered Jesus says, once we have the Holy Spirit, the laws are good for us and they're good for our neighbors. They're actually for the benefit of those around us. So this is what we see this morning. Following an unfiltered Jesus means understanding the purpose of God's rules, not as a threat, but as a gift, something given to us to make our lives more fruitful. And more importantly, the ultimate end is to have mercy and love on those around us. Amen.